0: So, we've been in the series Architecture of Truth, and we've been going through the book of First Timothy. And First Timothy is a book that, like, I was really excited about teaching until I started teaching it, <laughs> and then I noticed I was like, "Man, there's like some texts in here that are a little bit harder than I thought they were going to be to to prepare for." And um, today's sermon is on really the family of the church and how the family. Um, of the local church, that idea of being a family should should operate, and we're going to be covering um, the entirety of chapter five, and we have a lot to go over. But the whole idea here is that we are a family in Christ, and when you are part of a local church, you're part of a family, and God actually takes that pretty seriously. Like we're called a lot of things as. as As believers, you know, we're called disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. We're called citizens of heaven. Like we um, are even compared to parts of a building of, you know, the house or his body, members of his body. But I would say the most important one and and really the one that I think is most impactful is that we are called children of God. Think about that. Right. We're not just servants. We're not just citizens in his nation. But we're children of God. That's pretty amazing. And so the local church should operate as a family. And so that means dealing with each other's mess. It means having each other's back. It means being there for one another no matter what. Because when you think about friendships, friendships can come and go. But family's for life, as they say, right? But spiritual family is forever. Like literally forever. (laughs) Right? We are the spiritual sons and daughters of God. That means we are his family and we will be with him in, etern- in heaven for eternity as a family. And so Paul here writing Timothy on, on how churches should operate talks about how it's a family. Even in, in our theme verse, which is First uh, uh, Timothy 3.15. Do you have that, Aaron? Uh our theme verse was, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the or oh, sorry, in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. That's where we get the idea of architecture of truth, was from that last bit here, but he's saying, in the household of God, not the club of God, not the nation of God, but the household of God, which implies that we're family. And so this entire chapter really is on family details, like how how should things operate with the elderly, with widows, uh, with leaders, all of these things. We're going to go through it. But family is really important. And you know, you don't have to be um, a Christian to uh, see the importance of family. Most people see the importance of family, and for a lot of people, their family is the most important thing to them. But others, I mean, if you, if you were an orphan or your, or your families are all you know, have all passed on or something like that, or if you had an abusive home. um, Not for everyone. Some people actually struggle with the idea of having a family again because their experience was bad. But for the most part, people um, see family as this very important thing. Michael J. Fox, yeah, I'm quoting him. Uh Uh, Family is not an important thing. It's everything. And uh, Brad Pitt, even better, right? (laughs) A family is a risky venture because the greater the love, the greater the loss. That's the trade-off, but I'll take it all. See, even those who maybe aren't believers see the importance of family. This one is not really um, so inspiring, but I, I just had to say it. It's from Jerry Final. It says, there is no such thing as fun for the whole family. I saw that. And I thought that was hilarious. Um. So, as we're looking at this, we know that family is really important. But God's family is this eternal family. And it's a family that has the power of the Spirit. It's a family that has the strength of God within us. That we have clear instructions from God on how we should operate. And so we should be the least dysfunctional family on earth. The local church should be. However, if you've ever been in church for very long, because we are sinners and imperfect the church is pretty dysfunctional, isn't it? It's because we, not, we have not yet been glorified. He has not yet returned and, and perfected us and made us new. And we're not yet in heaven where all things will be perfect and no problems anymore. So the church is a family, but sometimes it's a dysfunctional family, isn't it? And that's why it's so important for us to go to Scripture on how we are to treat one another, love one another, respect one another. And then we get to this chapter here in, in 1 Timothy, and he really goes into a lot of details about these very practical things, but there's a lot of principles we can learn from them. Okay, we're going to go ahead and jump to 1 Timothy 5, verse, uh, verse 1. We're going to read the entire portion of Scripture here, and then we'll break it down afterwards. So, so bear with me. We're going to read um, quite a number of verses. Um, something I've never seen to before. Okay, but we'll have to make do. Okay. In uh First Timothy five one, it says, "Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him." As you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not Less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith besides that they learned to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not so i would have younger widows marry bear children manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already strayed after satan if any if any believing woman has relatives who are widows let her Take care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who trust have been, or have believing masters, must not be disrespectful on the on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay. A lot of scripture, isn't it? So, we have identified seven things in this chapter, in the first two verses of six. And those... Um, Seven things. We have a slide for that. Talks about exhortation, how to and how not to do it. Widows, tending to the family, elders, wino. We'll we'll talk about that. Uh, Workers, or sorry, works and sin, not workers. And then masters and servants. Everybody's really excited for that one, I'm sure. Okay, so let's talk about the first one, exhortation. He tells us in this passage here that you should respect older men. And rather than rebuke them, you would exhort them or encourage them in love like you would a father. And so what he's saying there, is, that word rebuke means to correct sharply. And so um, an older man, there's, you know, you could debate on what older is. Here in this text, he seems to think that over 60 is older. Um, there's some Old Testament uh, principle to to viewing people over 50 as older. So is it saying here that anybody's like, who they're like a day older than you, you can't, rebuke them. That's not really what it's saying. It's saying those who are considered old in your society or within your church to not rebuke them, but instead exhort them. So you wouldn't correct them sharply as you would a child. You would correct them um, as you would your own father, which is which is with a lot of respect and very carefully. Um, the other thing too is if you, as some you know young 20-year-old, go around rebuking a bunch of six-year-old men who've been Serving God for you know forty years, uh, good luck, <laughs> right? Like good luck. See how that'll work out for you because they're not going to respond to it. Um, so here he tells us to treat those older men as fathers, and your the younger men as your brothers. The women, the older women, as your mothers, and the younger women as your sisters. That's the idea of family. To treat each other like family, and then we. Gone on here to widows he has a lot of interesting points here and when it's talking about enrolling and showing them honor it's talking about taking care of them so they would be receiving housing and maybe some sort of salary from the church the church would be taking care of all of their physical needs that's what he's talking about enrolling them so he's like if we're gonna enroll widows into the church. Um, they need to be godly women and not women who are causing trouble. They're not busybodies, gossips, slanderers. They're not idle. But they're people who are serving God even in their old age. They are loving people. They're, they're helping people. They're serving the church. Those are the type of women. And not only that, they need to be over 60. Um, if they're under 60, they should just try to get remarried. And um, the other thing is that they have no family to take care of them. He says if they have family, if they have children, those children should try to pay back their mother by taking care of their mother. They shouldn't be burdening the church with that. But if there are truly widows within the church who don't have a family to take care of them, they're over 60, and they're good, godly, righteous, amazing women, you should enroll them. And I actually think here he's getting at the idea that these women could just be these amazing servants and almost like leaders within the church, like doing amazing things. Like they have this time; they're they're these godly women, um, and now they can be paid by the church to just serve the church. So it's actually a pretty cool thing. Um, but it's not saying that like every single um, person it's the church's burden. Oftentimes, the first thing we should look for is where's their family. How can we? How can we? Um, Exhort the family to be taking care of their own first. That brings us to point three, which is tending to the family. He makes a pretty um, sharp statement. Aaron, can you go to number three? Uh, He makes a pretty sharp statement about this. And that that those who do not take care of their own family have abandoned their faith and they are worse than an unbeliever. Paul is saying that there is no room in Christianity within the church for deadbeat dads or moms who abandon their children. There is no room in Christianity for it. His statement is as bold and blunt as it could possibly be. He says they have abandoned their faith and they are worse than an unbeliever. You have a responsibility to your family to abandon your family, um, As a parent, to abandon your child, something like that, is awful. Now, of course, if you're repentant. You ask for forgiveness. Of course, God is forgiving and will forgive all sins. But God takes this really serious. There's not room for it in the church. And if we see it happening, the church must call it out. You need to take care of your family. You must take care of your family. You cannot abandon your family. And honestly, there's nothing more to say about that than that. He's pretty, he just has one sentence about it. He hits it hard, and he moves on. The fourth point was about elders. He says, to show respect to leaders, especially to those who teach and labor for the church. He says that they're worth their wages. Um, when he says give double honor, um, he's referencing what he was talking about with widows, and apparently he's saying they should be paid twice as much as the, the widow should. Um, Because the widow's just one woman, and the pastor has a family, so pay him twice as much or so. So he's giving a rough idea for some church structure here. If you're taking care of widows, you should also be taking care of the pastor and his family. Um, And it says that they're worth their wages. Now, I don't take a salary. The Lord has blessed me in a way right now where I can do both and... um, We're bringing on Ernesto and Ernesto is part with the church and raising support. So um, but the thing here is those leaders who serve well, who um, truly lay their lives down for the church, who it's funny, but Paul, you know, calls them like an ox, like, you know, like uh, they're serving you and you would allow the ox to eat. Of the same fruit that he's bearing for you, right? That he's producing for you. And that was actually a reference to the Old Testament where it was against the law to muzzle your ox while he was, he was um, treading the grain. And that was because um, it's respectful to the animal to allow it to eat and not just to overwork it. And that's just a, like a natural good principle. But also for those um, who are in service to the church that they're, they're worth their wages. Now, of course... That has been abused in many churches where pastors take these enormous salaries um, that are just craziness. But um, for the most part, I, I would say that you, what you find is that most pastors aren't doing that. Most pastors are taking a reasonable wage. And you, you go, okay, what's a reasonable wage? Because like? Like when I was like uh, young and single and stuff like that, like I would hear a pastor's salary be like, that's so much money. And then, like, I got a real job and, like, a wife and kids. And I'm like, that's not that much money at all, <laughs> like, you know? Because, uh, like, when your perception changes once you actually have more bills and a family to take care of and all that. Uh, I heard a pastor, he said for their organization, so all the churches in their organization, what he recommends is uh, they take the average salary of, of their neighborhood or their church. So you, you look at your, the area you're living in. Or the, or the church itself, if you have enough people to kind of get an idea for what people are making. Um, and you take a salary that's kind of the average. Um, when that, That's pretty true. Like, if you're going to plant a church um, downtown Austin versus planting a church in, like, Taylor, your salary probably needs to be different. And it's not because you're worth more. It's just because the living cost is so much different. If you're planting a church downtown L.A. versus planting it in the desert of Arizona, your salary probably needs to be different. And that's just simply because of the cost of living. So it's, it's to be reasonable. There's no set numbers here. I think it's up to the, the discretion of, of the church and the leaders within the church. And to be honest, and one of the qualifications for le- leaders is to not be lovers of money. Um, so they're not in it for the money. They're not in it to get rich. But they, they do need to be survived. One of the things you don't want for uh, pastors within a church is them to feel so broke that they're worried about money, and so their, their prayers are about their own needs rather than for the congregation. But I, believe, I believe firmly that you know, as our church grows, we'll have more and more staff, and we want to make sure that our staff are paid enough where they're not worrying. Okay? Um, that's not to overpay or, or to just blow money in a bad way, but if our church leaders are worrying about money, they're not going to be a whole lot of use to you because their, um, their natural response is going to be to worry and to pray for those things instead of praying for you and trying to lead you well. Okay, so let's move on here. Number five, wino. This is every wino's favorite verse. See, wine is so good for your stomach, and it heals you of other ailments. This is amazing. Let's all drink wine all the time. <laughs> um, of course, alcohol is not bad. Uh, there, are, there have been Christians at different times that have tried to say alcohol in, in, to any amount is bad. That's just not what we see in Scripture. However, drunkenness is clearly forbidden in Scripture. Uh, it's clearly something that he does not want for, for any believers. But for pastors, there's a lot of... Um, even in Timothy and, and Titus, it talks about not the leaders not being drunks, not being addicted to much wine, but to have some of course is good, and apparently um, they even saw back then that there were certain um, physical benefits to it having a little bit of wine. Um, I feel like it's one of those things like we, like I've read different articles on like wine helps with this or that or this, but they're always changing like it's the same thing with caffeine like it's like one year it's like caffeine is terrible don't drink caffeine. And then it's like actually, it has some benefits. Coffee has a lot of benefits. You need to drink more coffee. Or it's like the same. I, re- I remember reading articles about how chocolate was bad, and then I remember reading articles about how chocolate was good. The scientific world can't seem to make up its mind on some of this stuff. Uh, but we know that the Bible does not forbid alcohol; it, it forbids the abuse of it, um, or or to overconsume it. Um, so even Timothy was charged by. To to drink some. Um, now, number six, works and sin. So in the end there, he talks about how some people's sin is less visible, and some people's sin is much more visible. And he said, likewise, some good works are very visible, and others takes time for you to notice it. And he kind of correlates that back to the leaders in there is that part of it is not laying on hands too quickly is because you need to have some time to view some time to see you know um because not everything is out in the open but what he also says is that all things will be brought to light you know even secret sins don't stay secret that long you hear, you hear of stories all the time, but secret sins don't stay secret that long. They're brought to light in one form or another, and that's because God loves you and wants you to repent. Um, so he doesn't allow you to get away with just hiding your sin all the time. It's um, not healthy for the church. It's not healthy healthy for the individual either. So ideally, the church is operating in this in this family dynamic um, with leaders and we're treating the older people as fathers and mothers, younger as brothers and sisters. And um, then we get to this last part here where he addresses slavery. He talks about masters and, and servants, bondservants. Um, obviously, people have a hard time with this because the American context for slavery is the slavery we had in America, which was racially based and in large part, was pretty awful. Um, it was abusive. Um, it was forced. and It was racist. Um, if that's the only context you have for slavery, reading verses like this would be hard to swallow, talking about how servants should still respect their masters, slaves should still respect their masters, masters should treat their slaves well. But if you understand the context then, um, slavery was viewed much um, different. They were not slaves because of race most of the time. Um, You were a slave for economic reasons. Um, Many people would become slaves because of their extreme debt, and they would oftentimes willingly sell themselves into slavery for an agreed-upon period of time to pay off their debt. Now, there were occasions, of course, anytime you have a master and slave relationship. There's going to be there's going to be abuse. There's going to be problems. But in their society, it wasn't racially based. It was mostly economically based. Um, now I would say, if you have debt, try not to pay it, and see if you're a slave or not. You you will, people will come after you. The Bible com- compares any debt to some form of, of slavery in a certain sense, and and. Uh, if you don't pay it, somebody is going to make you pay it. One way or another, you will pay it. And if you continue and you run, you will end up in prison. <laughs> like, there are there are people who end up in prison because they have these huge amount of debts that they refuse to pay. And you can get in a lot of trouble for it. Oftentimes, you, people get sued. Other things happen. But um, the other thing was... There wasn't much of a middle class back then. And so you had the rich and you had the poor. At first, the poor, they would actually find it better to be a slave in a rich person's house than to live like in the ghetto with their family. And so a lot of these people would actually willingly go into slavery because they saw no way for them to um, improve their own life on their own. And so they would willingly go into slavery. And that was called a bond servant, someone who would willingly give up their life into slavery. And and sometimes, you know, someone might have agreed to be a slave, uh, a bonds or servant or something for 10 years. And then at the end of it, they realized their life with the master was so much better. They would just completely give themselves over for the rest of their lives um, willingly because the life they were living there was better. It was economically better for them. They had more as a slave than they ever did with, not as a slave. Um, So, when you talk about slavery, it's a touchy subject, and obviously, there are a lot of problems with that concept. I mean, what we've seen, we saw in American history, and we see in other places in the world throughout history, Mm -hmm. were awful. It was oftentimes racially based, Um, it was forced, it was abusive, they worked people to death. This was happening in, like, uh, some of the worst I was ever reading was um, uh, about when the Dutch, they went over and they took over the Congo and South Africa... And they just—they literally took the the population down to half in Congo because they worked them to death um, building railroads and stuff. So there are obviously a lot of bad things about slavery, and I'm in no way like an advocate for slavery. I'm just saying when you come to verses like this, it's important to understand the context of the writer and the and the and the readers. Here And their context wasn't the Congo, it wasn't American slavery, it was Roman slavery, which operated a lot different and was mostly economic-based, and people would willingly go into it because they would find themselves with a better life. So, that being said, there's some principles you can learn about it for... For just how to manage people and how to work with people, especially when they're believers, is that you you show respect, but you also, um, as a manager, if you're in any sort of uh, leadership at your job or anything like that, you love people and you you don't you're not overbearing and you don't ask too much and you a lot you show grace and um, don't lead um, in a sharp, harsh way, but instead show love, patience, and mercy. If you are curious um, to read more about the scripture's view on slavery, read the book of Philemon. Paul had this slave who is a convert, and this slave had fled his master, um, and he owed him money. But he becomes a Christian, and Paul tells him to go back and make things right with his master. But then he asks his master to forgive him and see him as a brother in Christ rather than his slave. And so go and read that. The, the, the Bible's heart for slavery is, is, is actually um, for freedom because the gospel is all about freedom. And it's also for good, strong relationships without any abuse or anything like that. So Paul even pleads for the master to see him as a brother rather than a slave. Um, you see Paul's hearts there. So we have all these details. I think we ran through those seven pretty well. Um, and it's all about the family dynamic of church. In here, we're seeing principles on on how to take care of each other, how to respect one another, how to um, exhort one another, encourage one another. Um, we even see that within the church family, specifically, families still have responsibilities to each other—blood, um, you know, blood relatives, of course. Um, but it's a beautiful and amazing thing that God has called us His family. Like you, you really can't underestimate that. In First, uh, John, or sorry, John one twelve. it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. Jesus even said that real family is the spiritual family. In Mark 3.31, it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, "Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you." And he answered them, "Who are my my mother and my brothers?" And looking out, uh, sorry, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother." Christ talked about how it's the spiritual family for him, even he, Jesus had. Relatives. He had brothers and sisters. He had a mother and a father um, in the physical sense. And he said it is those who follow God. It is the spiritual house that is the real family. It's the real family. We are the children of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. In First John 3, 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are the reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him beloved we are god's children now and we and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is the idea here is that we have been made family and you know what sometimes it's messy right That's why Paul had to write this entire long chapter to address these different issues on how the church should operate when it comes to these different types of topics. Because it's messy. Because people hurt each other's feelings. Because people um, sometimes abandon their own family. Because sometimes people aren't respectful to leaders. Because um, some of the relationships are economic, master and slave, and they don't treat each other well. All of these things, he has to address them. Because he wants you to realize that you're a spiritual family in God. And John says here, you may not fully get it yet. Like it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it yet because we don't yet see the glorified kingdom of heaven. We don't yet see how it's all going to fully look. We don't yet see what this spiritual family will look like in heaven without sin when it's perfect But he says, hold on to that hope, knowing that you are a child of God and that we as the church are to view each other as family. And as I said, your different experiences with with what family looks like may affect how you view that statement, right? Some of you are like, yeah, my family is great. If the church is like that, that's going to be great. And others are like, man, family was rough. It was was not good. Like, I I stick around with them because they were family, but I I don't really want to. depending on your different um, backgrounds. But the thing is, God is the Father in this dynamic. And we have been given the right, right? And I think it, it changes the whole emotion of it. It's not the family that you're, you're, you're stuck with. It's not the people you just have to bear with. But you have been given the right, he says, to be called children of God. There's power in it. There's something amazing to that. And we have the perfect, loving, almighty Father in heaven. He's welcoming you into his family. And that's where the relationship has to begin. Right? Because if we go, hey, we're a family, and then we try to do it in our flesh, in in our abilities. If we try to do it in our works, like we're going to try to make this thing work. It's not going to go that well. But if we all go and we look to our Father, we look to Christ, and we look to them as examples. We receive their love and operate out of their love. That family dynamic can look pretty cool. We can forgive each other as he has forgiven us. We can love one another as he loves us. We can can give and help each other as he gives to us and helps us. It's a pretty amazing thing. And I, I like my hope is that churches will more and more operate as families, not not just our own, but the church in general. I mean, in some countries they're so much better at it than we are. So much better at it. In, uh, their church, they they they're there for real community. They're there to really take care of each other. In America, it's just like bouncing around every two years on average. Would you switch families every two years on average? Like I struggle with that. Like you know, as we're church planning, like like you know, part of me is like very bothered by this screen, right? And of course, I'm bothered that we had our signs stolen, that we had all of our stuff stolen. And even back when we had all that stuff, there's many things I was like, we eventually I want to improve this and that, you know, and make it more, uh, in you know, warm and in, inviting, uh. But then I was recently thinking about all that, and I was like, I don't know that I'm actually even the best person to be, like, analyzing this stuff. Like, where should the screen be and this, this kind of stuff? Because you know what? I have never church shopped, ever. I didn't grow up church shopping. My parents were committed to uh, church, and we, we did move to one church, and we were there for a long time. Out of Bible college, I immediately got plugged in with another church. And it was like I never shopped for churches. I never went around visiting churches, judging them on how good the coffee was. <laughs> like or the screen placement and deciding if I should be there based upon those things, right? Like I've never like I've never done that. I've ne- I've never been a part of that, but it is unfortunately a reality in our society right now that we pick churches like we do venues. We pick churches like we do events. And we go, oh, this one had this feel, there was like a good mix between bible and humor, the worship was good, was all, you know, so I'm going I'm going to go there. Um But then so often at those churches that are killing it in that area, people leave all the time saying, well, I never was able to find community. Well, maybe you should have picked a church based on community rather than um, what it looked or felt like to you, right? Now, of course, I want to do everything to the best of our ability. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to, like, make it real awkward and awful. Like, maybe I do sometimes, but, (laughs) you know, like... Like, of course, we want, to, we want to do it to the best of our ability. We want people to walk in and feel as welcomed as possible. We want, um, you know, in chapter 4, Timothy talks about how let your progress be known to all. And Timothy is the pastor of pastors. And Paul is telling him, hey, let your progress, you specifically, grow You specifically advance. You specifically work on your gifts and get better at them. And so my hope is, like, I'm always trying to get better at what I do. And I want all of us as a church to get better at what we're doing. But not just in screen placement and chair setup and coffee, but the entirety of what we're doing. Let's grow in our gifts. Let's grow in our abilities. Let's all come and bring our gifts, bring our um, offerings and and do this thing to the best of our ability, Amen. But again, it needs to be like at the heart of it about family and community and all this other stuff. Second, because I see no scripture says, that says if you don't have fifteen grand of uh, of equipment, you can't be a church. There's no example of that in scripture. There's no example in Scripture of picking a church based on superficial things. The church, the early church, they were giving everything. They were laying their lives down. They were literally selling homes to to give to the poor. They were doing crazy stuff. So we should grow our community groups. My hope is that those become like awesome families. And I think we see it more and more. But sometimes we just kind of come together and go, oh, I like this verse. Oh, I like that verse too. But it, it when it's like, hey, like, what are you, what's really going on in your life? You're doing good. Okay. How can I help you see how you could be using that to, to share with others, to teach others? Right. Cause it's like, sometimes it's like, Sometimes maybe you're like, I really don't have anything to, like, confess, like, right now. Or, hey, I really don't have any problems I need prayer for right now. So, like, okay, what are you excited about? How can we pour into you? How can we get you more excited? But also, like, you know, we've seen times where people apologize for having, like, a real prayer request. You should never have to apologize for for having, like, a real, like, prayer request, something personal, Right? Like, it's like, oh, I need prayer for this job. Oh, I need, my, you know, my uncle this or that. Uh, I heard a pastor once who's like, prayer requests need to be more than Aunt Susan's bunion, right? <laughs> 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 like, it needs to be more than that. If we're only praying for the, like, we have seen many people healed. So, like, we prayed for my uncle, he was, he was healed. Like, we've seen people within our community, we pray for them, they're healed. Like, of course we pray for those things. But it can't be just that. Like, it can't just be like, oh, I like this first can you guys pray for my aunt? okay what do you what areas do you want to grow? What areas are you struggling? How can we help one an, one another? How can we really be the body? How can we really see each other as brothers and sisters you know and mothers and fathers and the thing about that is like okay i don't I don't know how about your families grew up, but like you're pretty honest with like your siblings' faults, aren't you? <laughs> like more than anyone. Like you're like, like you will just like snap. Like, hey, well, you did that that one time. Like, I still haven't forgiven you. <laughs> uh, or you just see something in them and you just bugs you, and so you always tell them, like, you know, well, you do this. And okay, maybe that was just me. All right, but uh, I'm sure that most of you, your experience with your siblings was very different than even with your friends now. You called each other out on stuff. But but probably most of you are still close to your siblings, at least somewhat. And obviously, there can be a point where where that kind of stuff goes far, uh, way too far, and causes relationships to break. But at the same time, there's something to learn from that. Where you love each other, but you also see stuff and you are like, hey, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? You know? Like, well, we're so scared of that sometimes. I'm so scared of that even sometimes. Like, hey, like... Going deeper and really like dealing with each other's flaws and having people really deal with my flaws—it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's not fun, <laughs> but it, it brings about real growth. And we, ought, when we operate in more of a family dynamic, a loving family with God as our as our example, His love is our example. But we still have that that realness, that rawness that you have in family. The church will grow like crazy. I was reading this thing and it said that um, the thing that limits people isn't their weaknesses, but their blind spots. I thought that was really interesting. Not your weaknesses that are limiting you. Your blind spots It's the ones you don't even know are there. But in a family dynamic, people know it's there. Right, give them enough time, and they're going to see your weak spots. And we need to be able to show each other, "Hey, this is your weak spot. Hey, these are the areas I see um, that you're not even seeing. These are the things that maybe you realize you are weak in. How can I help you? These are your strengths. How can I help you grow in them? Start having that kind of dynamic. The church can really grow. You can grow personally, and you can help others to grow. And so I want our church to operate as a family. Right, it's one of, We have the Austin Chapel code that says, you know, welcome to the family. We're more than just community, we're family. So I hope that that is more and more true of our church all the time. You know, this is all made possible because of the blood of Christ. Sin separated us 100% from God. And no matter how much you worked or, or tried, you would not be able to reconcile with God on your own. There's one sin. God made a way, and that was through his son, Jesus Christ. And He made a way for us to become children of God. What we were created to be all along, to be restored as children of God, to be welcomed into the family, and that was through the blood of Christ. So it's by Jesus' blood and his sacrifice on the cross that we can even have real family, that we can have spiritual family. So today we're going to celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26, 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So during worship as we, as we begin, um, at your own time, you can come here to this table. Take of the bread, take of the cup, take it to your seat. And in remembrance for, of what Christ did for you, i uh, um, pray. But also the Bible talks about if you have a problem with your brother, first go and restore with him. Right? If you have, and reconcile with him. If you have something going on, if you have some unforgiveness in your heart, take this as an opportunity to be real about it. with God. Take this as an opportunity to maybe restore a relationship. Maybe don't partake unless you're like, God, I'm going to after this service, go and reconcile with that person. I believe the Lord would have us respectfully partake of communion. And not to remember this, this unity and this, this restoration that he offers through his sacrifice without being willing to show unity and reconciliation and restoration to others. So I would, I would encourage you guys to pray about that. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you so much. Thank you so much for your sacrifice on the cross, God. Thank you for all that you have done for each one of us, God. Lord, I pray that we would live in it, live in the unity of this family that you have for us. And in that, love one another, forgive one another, take care of one another, help one another grow. God, we thank you Lord, we would be lost without you or we would be condemned without you. You have made a way, and it's so beautiful. God, we thank you so much for all that you have done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.